0: Okay, let me tell you what's going to happen. Okay. I'm going to walk in there. Yeah. The people in there. Mm Mm-hmm. Are going to greet me with a smile. Yeah, Yeah. and they're going to say, welcome, how may we help you? Oh, that's good. And they're going to be friendly, Uh and they're going to be nice, Right. and I'm going to be treated with kindness and respect and dignity Uh when I walk in there (laughs) to the Department of Motor Vehicles. Yeah. Mission Impossible. And I will be in and out of there in minutes. Right on. Will not be presented at this time. And I will hug those people as I'm leaving. Yeah in order to bring you the following special podcast
1: it's almost live still alive it's alive A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, swagglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and mercenaries. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter
2: with you? Almost Live. is <laughs> just a real nice surprise. Still Alive. Just a real nice
0: surprise. Even though some members of Almost Live were pretty good at playing the parts of dumb people, none of them actually were stupid. Well, there, there was that one guy. Oh, oh, man, was he an idiot. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> he, he thought the Gates Foundation is a type of girdle. He thought the Kentucky Derby was a hat. He once tripped on a cordless phone. Yeah, (laughs) everybody remembers that guy. But one of the show's pioneering members wasn't just smart, he was Sharp. In fact, that's his name, Jim Sharp. It was Sharp in 1984, along with show host Ross Schaefer, that together birthed Almost Live even though neither of them is a trained OBGYN. And after four years, through growing pains, struggles to find an audience and a paltry budget, nonetheless created a show that won almost 40 Northwest Emmys. Now you know, some people are just plain funny. They look funny, they think funny, they talk funny, but Jim Sharp knows funny. And that talent has informed his career from Almost Live on. Through the years, he went from producing The Late Show on Fox to moving on as an independent writer and producer of numerous TV programs and projects, always in the comedy realm. By the time he crossed the finish line to retirement a couple of years ago, Jim had risen to Comedy Central's West Coast Executive Vice President of Original Programming and Development. That is a pretty big title, and a pretty big deal, and a remarkable career. These days, Jim and his wife divide their time between homes in the Seattle area and San Diego. Here now is Jim Sharp in a Sharp Conversation with a not-so-Sharp interviewer. So where do you hail from, Jim Sharp?
2: I hail from Tacoma, Washington, actually about 10 miles south of Tacoma, Spanaway.
0: Is there another Tacoma in the United States? Oh, I don't know of one. I, I'm just, just people always say Tacoma, Washington, like to narrow it down or specify. Yeah.
2: I'm going to say no, because I feel like I would have heard of it.
0: I know there's a fast food place in eastern Washington called Taco Maw's. As far as towns go, I think Tacoma is it. Yeah. Now, did you actually uh, go to school in Tacoma or, or nearby? Nearby, I went to uh,
2: Washington High School, which was a we were the first graduating class of that high school. We started it as sophomores had no, never had upperclassmen. Hmm. It's in the Franklin Pierce school district.
0: That's kind of a nice position to be in. You don't have any big guys telling you what to do or pushing you around.
2: I guess. And, you know, athletically, we were able to play as juniors, you know, right. Against, uh in, in the regular league and, you know, there was no competition on, you know, so that was kind of
0: fun, but. What were your sports?
2: Football, basketball, and baseball. Hmm.
0: Did, Did you, it all. Do any track and field? No. Too much work. It, it, is too, it is too much work. It turns out you have to run a lot and you have to jump and yeah. throw stuff. Yeah. It, I never went for it either. And that
2: stretching.
0: No, you don't want to stretch. You want to go straight out onto the field. Yeah.
2: Stretch it out.
1: Stretch it out.
0: Hey, I have to tell you, before we get too much further into this, uh, I got on uh, Google. I like to say I was doing my research for this interview. I noticed that there is another, Jim, and you probably know this. But there's at least one other famous, Jim Sharp. Do you know who I'm talking about? I I, I think you're talking about a rodeo guy. Yep, the, a bull rider named Jim Razor Sharp. He's
1: won at the last two bull riders he went. He placed at the Bucking Ball the other day. Oh, Not to be confused with the
3: 20th annual Bucking Ball coming up this year in San Francisco. A the real a Bucking Ball. Oh, the
1: real Bucking Ball. Oh, no, no. Here it is. Do it, do it. For Round to the right. He owns him now. Tonight, <laughs> ah, that is nothing average in the world. That little Charley cat bucked, and he rode him right. You can brag on him for a third place money at this time with seventy-seven points for the world champion Jim Sharp, seventy-seven.
0: And he was—he was supposed to be the the best bull rider ever. Uh, so. You're not the only athlete. You didn't go for bull riding at Washington High School, I assume. No, no, I'd skip that. Well, that's hard to find uh, good bulls there <laughs> yeah. in the neck of the woods. Now, specifically, did you I think I heard you, you lived in Spanaway. You're going to school, maybe you're even in grade school, when you start getting the idea that, hey, I really, I really like comedy. I wonder if I would be good at writing it or performing it. How did it start for you?
2: Yeah, no, I did. I love comedy and I love television. Um, And I really took to late night watching Carson at a very young age. Sis Boomba. Sis Boomba. (laughs) Describe the sound made when a sheep explodes. (laughs) And really...
0: Did your your parents sanction that or did you have to sneak in uh, and watch it? That
2: like a little bit of both, I think. Um, and and then you know, Letterman was was the best. It was just great. And I would tape every show and watch it yeah. every day. Yeah. And so did uh, I. Nice. Yeah.
4: I had a girl come up to me and be like, Can I kiss you for a hundred dollars? And I was like, No.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. Do you have her name? And yeah really, i mean i i we and you know we'd have debates about uh, leno or letterman you know who and that's no contest it's
5: no, and, I don't,
0: and i don't know how to explain it to people but it wasn't just about yeah. telling jokes it was about the whole attitude and the whole uh, the whole style that, that i just yeah. preferred. It, yeah. yeah so did you participate in school plays or did you do any uh, talent shows uh, how did you start writing
2: not in school the way i you know I, I went to i went to college i went to the university of puget sound also in tacoma welcome
3: to the university of puget sound
2: i started writing fiction i started writing a lot of short stories very unsuccessfully and i got out of college and needed a job so i became a teacher for for five years
0: oh really uh, where, where where did you teach
2: i t- taught in port orchard washington ah. and um I taught, uh, middle school, junior high, actually ninth graders.
0: What, uh, did you teach general subjects or were there specific things that
2: you. Uh, English oh. and social studies.
0: Ah, yeah. Yeah. So Pretty did scary. you get a, did, Had you gotten a college degree in, yeah. uh, social studies?
2: Uh, no, I got a college degree. Yeah. Well, in political science and,
0: um, political science is more of an anti-social studies, right?
2: I guess so. Yeah. Wow. Seems mm-hmm. that way these days. Um. And and also had a degree in uh, communications, but I was still, Pat, I was still writing a lot of fiction and, and, and trying to get, you know, things published and everything yeah. I wrote, everything I wrote fiction wise was, was rejected. Uh, just, I didn't oh. even feel it came close. Did, but, did your short stories have humor in them? Yeah, they did. Well, I think they did. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, well, uh, don't don't let that rejection thing stand in the way. I, I'm I'm sometimes amazed, just like for t- TV shows, how those ever finally get produced. How does a book ever finally get published, and then do you, do these people get recognized? It's a it's well, a lo- then, lo- writing's a lonely craft. Let's face it. yeah. Well,
2: nowadays everybody self publishes their books. They can do that very cheaply because. And uh, I did, I can't tell you how many people I know have written a book and they really shouldn't have, but they did, and it's out there.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Well, Jim, uh, yeah. so so you you've gone to UPS and you meet and you meet a guy there, and and I'm told that you met Ross Schaefer as on you had you didn't know him through the whole school experience until graduation day. Is that right?
2: That's right. They lined us up alphabetical order so uh sharp and it was 100 degrees that day and we were out in the sun and we started talking and it's the first time we actually met was in that line the last day of college
0: what did you talk about do you you remember it at all
2: i think we we talked about how hot it was yeah (laughs) yeah
0: yeah well that's that's certainly something you had in common was was at that time was ross trying to do stand-up comedy or were the either of you even thinking about comedy at that point?
2: I, I don't know that he was, you know, I think actually what we talked about is that, you know, I, I played, we both played uh, high school sports. So we kind of knew each other. He went to federal way high school, I believe. And we kind of connected that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, kind of stayed in touch and we ended up, several years later, playing uh, recreational basketball together.
0: That's right. I think he mentioned that you were like in a six foot and under league or something. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so Billy Barty could have played on your team.
4: So, so
0: then, so then, but you, you and Ross stay in touch, but you're not really doing things together. Well, at some point, I know you too uh, formed an ad agency.
2: Yeah. Ross had an a- agency going where he was doing um, a lot of different, uh, well, he had these carpet uh, companies, stores, these several carpet stores. And uh, I think he was looking to kind of segue out and and do other things. That was at this time he really was starting to uh start uh stand-up comedy and um so he needed some help and i going back to what i was telling you earlier i like to write and i wasn't very successful writing flowery flowery stuff or fiction but i could write pretty clearly and concisely which you know is good for advertising really real economy of words i was pretty good at that i think and so,
0: a, i think a commercial is is a is the ultimate short story if you if you tell yeah it right. yeah
2: i think so too so, I so got, did you
0: did you guys have the account um i can't remember the name it's in auburn i think it's a car dealer and and he built himself I, as the giant of the valley was that yours
2: it was mine yeah i actually that was after russ left and his name pat was emperor tito Right. Hippertito. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, I
0: gotta play you a thing right here. Uh I had a radio show a few years ago and my son Chris would come yeah. on it occasionally. And he started doing this character based on the uh, Seattle area talk show host, Dory Monson. I think he called him Dodie Manson or something like that. Uh-huh. That's a pretty good imitation of them. And so the idea of it was that he would come on my radio show and he would be ranting about something. It wasn't about politics or anything important. One day he comes on and he's ranting About the giant of the valley, uh, who makes him furious because he says in at one point in the commercials he's a giant, and then the next point in the commercial he's the same size as as a car, and he said that just makes no. So he carries on like that, and and so we we did that bit, and the next day I got a call from the ad agency, not you by then, who said, "Hey, Emperor Tito would like to come on the air and and uh, debate." dodie manson i said that'd be, <laughs> that'd be great so here's a little bit of that
1: is a... he a man or a giant there's well, no such thing
0: it's both okay well we're going to put the question to the man himself the giant is on the line with us good morning sir good morning now you've heard uh the giant is... of the valley what uh, dodie manson has said here um wh- how do you square this apparent incongruity of uh, heights uh,
4: well, this is a uh, you know this is a very interesting question. Well, thank a Very you. good question.
0: See, Donnie, it's a good and, question. Uh, it
4: is. I, I I've been listening to your show, mm-hmm. and uh, and I understand that this is a big topic.
0: Yes, this is the hottest he, topic of he, our show.
4: Topic, and he's looking forward to an answer. If it's um, it's a giant or a man? Yes. Well,
0: the question, the answer to this is both. What do you think about that, Doty?
1: That is not exactly the answer we were hoping no, let him for. finish,
0: Doty. He's going to explain what he means by it's that. A giant or a man? At 90% of the time, I'm a giant. <laughs> 10% of the time, yeah. I'm a human like you or ordinary person, <laughs> and I assume that you're normal. Are you a giant right at this moment? <laughs> right at this moment, I'm a giant.
1: So the phone must be tiny in the palm of your huge hand.
0: Yes, the phone is very small.
1: How do you explain being taller than your sign, approximately, you know, 60, 70 feet tall, and yet in the end, you're the same size as an automobile? I'm just, I'm confused. You're confused. I mean, it is really, it it apparently really bothers you. This is hard for me to believe. Do you have giant kids? Are you in a giant house? Or is this, are you just a giant at work?
0: No, I'm all, all this above. I have a giant house. I have a little tiny phone.
1: So it's basically movie magic
0: is what you're saying. No, he's not saying that.
1: Smoke and mirrors is what he's saying. So it's... We're being bamboozled, basically.
0: Well, well I guess we'll, we need to wrap this up. Doty, do you have any final uh, remark or that you'd like to make? I, I find, find his entire uh, explanation more than plausible.
1: Well, being a man and a giant, the pixie dust sort of explains things to me. I'm a, still a bit confused, but I'm now proud to call the giant of the valley my friend. <laughs>
4: I, that's, that's, I'm very, very flattered by My this.
0: giant friend. Oh, oh, oh. So I don't know if he is still, uh, at it and I don't know that he really cleared up the dispute any, but it was, uh, it was fun having him on the air. Did you create the, that character? Was that your idea?
2: No, no. I, you cannot blame me for that.
0: <laughs> well, the guy, the guy was actually very charming, as you could hear, and
2: He's a good guy, and he was a good client, and he did a lot of TV, and he always paid his bills on time, so I have yeah. no comp-
0: that's That's all you can but, ask for.
2: But he knew what he wanted to do, and you know he was going to be on camera, and I think it probably worked for him somehow.
0: I was, I was working at King TV uh, at the time, and I believe you and Ross would come in occasionally to post-produce your commercials at King. So yeah. I got a, a first chance to know you a little bit then. Yep. Uh, but then about 1984, in fact, it was exactly 1984, the <laughs> pro- program director, a new program director was trying to make his mark. Yeah. His name was Bob Jones, and he wanted to do some sort of local comedy show. Yeah, and, and he took a couple of swings at it with some pilots. I don't remember. I remember one of them was called the Rainy Day Gazette. That didn't fly. And then another one was called, I think, Take Five. A lot of that history is a little murky, but at some point, Ross and you got tapped to see if you could put a show together. Tell us how that happened.
2: Yeah, well, Ross Ross was actually, you know, having a lot of success on the on the comedy scene, and he had just won the uh, Seattle comedy competition. Yeah, yeah. So here was this guy that was kind of like, you know, out there. He was headlining in clubs all over the country won the competition in Seattle, you know, good-looking guy. And you're right, his name was Bob Jones, and he wanted a locally produced comedy show. Um, And so he called Ross, and uh, Ross called me. At that time, I was was starting to write jokes, you know, for Ross and for some other people.
0: Oh, were you? Uh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. I was one of those guys, Pat, that sent jokes in. So I'd send jokes in to Joan Rivers and a guy named byron allen and
0: i remember uh, byron allen
4: yeah yeah, yeah. i guess i tell you a little about myself first uh, just turned 19 had to register for the draft how many people had to register for the draft Jack? all right i'm not worried about it though because the post office is handling the paperwork
2: <laughs> and um you know sometimes they pay you like 10 bucks a joke you, you fax them in
0: and did they did they pay you according to how good the joke was? I mean, if it was a really it was a really knockout joke, you might get fifty bucks, and if it was no. a, a pun, maybe ten dollars. Yeah, just 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 a
2: flat fee. So anyway, Ross and I, um, Ross called me, and I think a guy by the name of Mike Noon. You probably remember Mike. Yep. He lay in his deathbed, dying in the late afternoon sun. Like vultures, they gathered round him. He
1: looked at them one by one. He smiled when he saw their faces, so falsely sad. He said, kids, I'll be leaving you soon. You'll be losing your old dad. They cried, oh, no, this can't be so. But he pushed those thoughts away. Then he said, kids, about my money, I've got a funny thing to say. I blew it. I spent it all. I went out a ball you thought i was up here pining away well i skipped town one fine day i took off all around the world and i gambled and drank found some girls and i'm here to say i had a ball i took that money and i blew it all
2: and um we uh, we didn't know what we were doing we we did a the way I remember it, we did two pilots. And I don't know that we did them at the same time. I think we did the first one, and it probably wasn't very good, but maybe he saw something, he being Bob Jones saw something that had some promise mm-hmm. or that he liked. And he asked us to do another one. Um, I didn't know
0: that. I didn't know you did two of them.
2: Yeah. And the second one, we uh, saved the things that worked in the first one and added a few other things. And um They bought it. They put it on the air.
0: What was your general thinking about the kind of show you guys wanted to do? You, I mean, you realized that it was a local show. So did you want to emphasize local stuff? Neighborhood?
2: I think. I think we wanted to hold court on Seattle. And the show, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the show was kind of a Letterman ripoff, meaning that we had a desk and we would have a single guest.
0: You had a band as well. Yeah,
2: so it was really designed like that classic late night show and, and, um, you know, a lot of that didn't work. We probably, we did have a lot of bits and sketches.
3: Tonight on the Guppy File, we uncover a conspiracy so insidious that it threatens to grind this nation to a halt. I just want to buy this half gallon of ice cream, but lurking at the head of this line is a dire threat to everything this nation stands for. Hi, how are you? Fine. Paper or plastic for you today? (laughs) <laughs> I,
2: decide. I think uh, I'll go with the plastic
3: Plastic, okay
2: uh, You know, uh, maybe paper
3: Paper, paper, okay
2: I like they use them for garbage sacks
3: Okay, $6.43
2: okay. I'm going to need a pen
3: uh, This is uh, no checks, cash only
5: I, I, yesterday I went to the bank and it was after three, it was like 10 minutes after and, I, and it was okay, after I'll three, my what? bank this is, closes. This is one
3: 10 time. Well, go today. ahead and write a check. I'm okay.
2: I'm sorry. I just, I was out of cash in the bank.
3: That man is Wendell Digby, the founder of the highly annoying National Association of Slow People.
2: But I think, you know, and this is maybe getting ahead of it for you, but I think when, when John took over and what you get, we were doing with, with Elmo's Life, it became more of a sketch show. You know, right, right. Came a pure sketch show. And that's really, I think, what it should have been from the beginning rather than sit down on the desk and have a band and, you know, bring in a a, a C minus guest. Um, yeah. Those are things that didn't work, I think.
0: Did you realize that at the time? Did you Did you lobby for uh, that, no. that other show? Or
2: We were like kids in a candy store. This was like, we had our own TV show and we did everything. Mm-hmm. And we, we learned how to shoot. We learned how to edit. We'd sweep out the studio. We'd warm up the audience. And for some reason, they didn't cancel us. And second year goes by and they didn't cancel us. I don't know why
0: well it was always on the ropes i mean until until you know maybe uh five six years went by It, it was always but what happens if you can keep something going for that long lo and behold people that are raw and new at it start to learn the ropes and they start getting pretty good at it
2: that's what happened five years later we started to yeah, get pretty good at yeah. it, make a little noise. And, um, but that, that was the key is just allowing us to learn. We were, it was definitely learning on the job.
0: You uh, you guys didn't just do sketches and things though. So you tried to do things that would get you attention, uh, national attention, uh, ideally. Yeah. And one of those, and I'm told it was your notion, uh, was to try to promote the song "Louis Louie as the state anthem of the new state song.
2: Yeah. the most silly ridiculous song for state state song and, and louis Louie just came into my mind.
4: the
1: and,
2: so and that did that did get out there and we got a, somebody in the House of Representatives in Olympia to get behind it and introduce it as a resolution Or, uh, and uh, that made the papers and news and so, yeah that was something that, that worked really well.
4: thank you Mr. President ladies and gentlemen of the Senate. You know, I, uh, several years ago uh, when this was popular I was learning to play the saxophone and after studying Uh, for probably a couple months and working diligently on uh, uh, on uh, this song I was able to get the three notes down it takes to play the background uh, and throughout the entire song and uh, I think it would be a great opportunity for our young people to get thrust into uh, learning a song uh, relatively quickly that is not too difficult and uh, has such great literary excellence as words like uh, uh me catch a ship across the sea and uh uh me gotta go and things like that you know so i i i have to uh encourage that uh, you support this resolution and uh and give our young people an opportunity to uh easily and readily uh uh, get uh, some culture thank you
2: you know the other thing a while back, a few, just a few months ago, I was going through some things and I found this button, this button that King made. And the other thing that we did, Pat, is we we did a campaign to try to get um, Sonny and Cher back together.
0: Oh, I remember that, yeah.
2: I found this button that had Sonny and Cher on it said back together. How
0: far did you guys get with that? Did you get any response from Sonny or Cher? I don't, I don't
2: recall, I don't think so.
0: <laughs> but it didn't hurt to try. Yeah. You you were billed as the head writer for Almost Live, but it seems like out of the gate you were the sole writer of the show. I mean, you didn't have a big staff under you, right?
2: Well, in the pilot, it was it was Ross and, and uh, Mike Noon and myself. And when we um, when we went on the air, it was real small. Although I'm trying to think, and you may know the answer to this, when we brought John Keister up, and over.
0: now here he is. John, 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 John. Yeah, I don't know the answer uh, specifically, but I do know that he was doing time on another show called Rev Rock Entertainment yep. Videos, and he was doing this thing called the Rocket Report.
3: Good evening. I've got something to say to Seattle tonight. Portland and Vancouver have been kicking our rock and roll butts for too long. Something has to be done about it. They've been conniving against us since the beginning of rock and roll history in the Northwest. Now look at Louie Louie. The Whalers recorded it here first, had a local hit, and the next thing you know, the Kingsmen from Portland stole it and turned it into one of the biggest rock and roll hits of all time. The Sonics and the Whalers were great Seattle bands during that era, but who got the big bucks and the weekly television show? Paul Revere and the Raiders with those dippy hats and colonial suits.
0: That's just what you'd expect from a state of bottle and tin can collectors. And I don't know if you guys recruited him. In fact, I think it was something that was sort of thrust upon you. At least I think that's what Ross said.
4: Yeah, it was. But
0: Bob Jones said, no, we got to get this guy into the show. You got to need some more horses in the stable. And I think he he might be able to offer something. But what, what do you remember your first impressions about Keister?
2: well i think i think you described it perfectly i think we were a little hesitant and not sure because he was thrust upon us and i think we were probably a little protective um but i mean he hit the ground running he had this uh i can't remember the bit the very uh, first bit he did. It, it,
0: well he did a, it under the blanket name assignment danger
2: yeah and he did this thing at Gasworks
4: park
0: you remember that i'm not sure about that one but I remember the first one I was aware of was—it uh, was so simple. It, it was—he was around a dumpster. All of those always have signs on them that, that say, "Do not sit on or play around." And so he did exactly that because, after all, it was dangerous. But his, he would play like Parcheesi or something, sitting on top of the dumpster. Right. It—it it, it doesn't sound like it would have enough teeth to be a real bit, but it played really well. I remember. And then he would take some of the. Seattle uh, norms and and totems and things like walking against the light, uh, you know, pedestrian light, but he he would boldly do so anyway, you know, that kind of stuff. It's, it played really well and it added a different kind of seasoning to the show too. I thought that was good.
2: Well, it added a lot of funny too. And that's, um, look, John, John came on and, um, he just really produced his stuff was really great. He was, he had a great persona. He had that look, very distinctive look, but all of his comedy had a point of view and that's really, you know, a formula for success. And his stuff really was some of the best. And it was, you know, bit after bit, he was so consistent. He became popular very quickly. And, you know, quite honestly, Pat, I'd say the same thing about you and your participation in your pieces. They they really put us at a high level and kind of took almost life to a different level.
0: Well, you're very kind to say that. You know, uh, Ross uh, said that you also... I believe, now correct me if I'm wrong, but in the summer when uh, Almost Live was on hiatus, I think even after its first season, he got a gig doing a game show of sorts called Love Me, Love Me Not. Yeah. And, and he wanted you to participate as a writer on that show, which was basically, it's, and I think there's been reiterations of it, uh, reincarnations of it, I should say. Uh, it, it basically is a couple's romance kind of show. And so, and so they wanted you to, Ross wanted you to help him write jokes for it. Wow. Meet the star of Love Me, Love Me Not, your host, Ross Schaefer. Thank
2: you. Well, yeah, we went up to Vancouver and produced a bunch of shows in a very short time. I was the only writer on it. And so every every question, you know, we would take it with a joke. So that was a busy time. It was a lot of fun. It was really great drill for me. I think, you know, when you do that, just time after time, it you know joke writings like anything else you kind of learn stuff about what word is what words are funny and how right. close the step word should be to this and so it was really good drill and I think it helped me become a better joke writer but yeah that was that was really cool to go up there and do this uh, nationally syndicated show all right now every time you outbox the in I'm gonna give you another hundred bucks okay okay what's your topic Sally
4: my topic is love potions now, legend has it, Peter, that that great lover, Casanova, believed that eating oysters would increase his desire to make love. So, every morning, he would eat 50 oysters, but not at the breakfast table. He ate them in the bathtub, and usually with a friend.
0: <laughs> yeah, you don't want to try to save money by using clams, either. <laughs> I remember Ross telling me how prolific you were and uh, whether it was that show or almost live, you couldn't be anything but prolific because it wasn't like you had uh, 27 other writers doing the work. It it came down to a handful. He remembers two jokes that you did for love me, love me not. Uh, one, (laughs) one premise was that, and I don't know if you remember these, he said, the, the, the fact was that the Chinese people are, the most romantic uh, people in the world and they have over 270 positions for love making that was the setup and your joke was yes and four of those positions require a spotter <laughs> great joke and then and then he remembered that you uh, had written one where it says the morning after you should always say thank you to the young woman and if you happen to know her name, you should throw that in, too. Yeah. Do you remember writing any of those? I think I do remember that last one, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, that's pretty good stuff.
1: That's what the joke is, that's what the joke's made of.
0: So you guys you are doing this, and how long were you on Almost Live? It seems some people think you were only there a year or two, but I think you were there about five years, weren't you?
2: Yeah, five or six years.
0: And then I think a lot of people know the story of Ross getting tapped to uh, to do the Fox late night show, basically replacing Joan Rivers. Yeah, you jumped at it, and you agreed to go with him. Was that immediately understood that you were going to go along too?
2: No, not necessarily, but I mean that's, you know, going back to what we talked earlier about late night television and comedy and, and, you know, so it it was a dream to go to Hollywood, pretty hard to turn down. There was this part of me that felt bad about leaving almost live so quickly um, because a lot of people now were involved with the show. The show was having success and it felt like we were bailing. Um, And I think I can't remember how that went you might know I, I think ross maybe came back and and continued to tape some almost live i think was-
0: i think he was going to try to do that but he realized uh, in short order that it wasn't going to work yeah uh, didn't work so yeah so he got out of that i don't remember it and i I'm not, I'm not even sure how well he remembers that time another writer under you scott Schaefer, also went along yeah. to, uh, to do the yeah. the late show yeah Scott talks about how looking out and seeing the Hollywood sign and all of that it just he couldn't believe that he was was there doing that kind of work. Did you feel like that too?
2: Oh uh, very much so. It was like 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 I said it was a dream, and I'll tell you a story we um when we came down there, we were promised the last six months the way the old late show Joan Rivers was she was the host for a long time, and then when she went off the air arsenio hall came on and he was on for a while and for some reason pat they let arsenio go and then they started doing rotating hosts for quite some time different comedians a lot of them they would go through that and then you know ross got the last six months of the contract uh, to fill the contract so we we go into the building it was called the wilton north building on the fox lot i remember that yeah and they they put us in these offices and they didn't have any place to office me. So they put me in Joan Rivers old office. It was the only because I went down as as the head writer. Ross was allowed to bring his own crew. There were no writers there, you know. Okay. Um, and so they said, well, we don't have any room over here anymore. We're going to have to put you over on this side. I said yeah sure okay and i walk over there they take me over there and it's joan river's old office and i walk into that office and it's huge it has a it has its own waiting room and this huge office it looks right out at the hollywood signs but everything in it every piece of furniture was pink it was all pink which worked out
0: because that's, that's your
1: favorite color You are so very, a
2: You know, and I said to myself, I'll, I'll never forget this, that I said, I could walk wo- I could work in this industry for the next 30 years, and I'll never have an office as nice as this. And that was true. That absolutely played out.
0: Or as pink as that, yeah. Yeah. So, so, Except- so you guys are there. You did you know that uh, six months was going to be curtains, or it was the hope that they would extend the contract?
2: Oh, the hope was to extend it. We thought we were going to tear it up. Yeah, we, we were going to be really. You know, we got off to a really good start down there. By the way, got off to a good start using some bits we did on almost live. They hit really strong, and people were really fired up. But you know, as you go along and you're doing show after show, day after day, week after week, um, it kind of takes its toll. You know, you're you're asked to produce so much material. Oh yeah. And, and you know, there's this thing called booking, and that became somewhat difficult
0: because you guys are always competing with the Tonight Show and, and the yeah. other the other shows, uh, and and would get backseat boogie for a lot of uh, bookings, I assume, because of that. Yeah exactly so how long so six months go by and then you guys suddenly are told well see you later guys so where did you go right after that
2: i moved on to a couple different shows that uh as a writer and uh but what sh- people,
0: what shows were those do you, do you well remember? one
2: was called haywire that i think you're familiar oh, yeah. with you yeah. contributed you contributed a lot of material yeah, you were
0: you were nice enough to uh to ask me to send some material for it yeah yeah it was a fun, goofy show. I, I like yeah, it. Yeah.
2: Thing had a nice run, too,
0: and for television
2: life, which usually isn't very short. I think we ended up doing about 16 weeks.
0: Hi there, and welcome to this here place, a show that shows you how to fix up your place. And so let's come on over here. Mike's our cameraman today. Watch out for that garbage can. Mike. Larry, I've got a question for you about electricity. Now, when you're dealing with a wire like this, how do you avoid a nasty shock? Never, never touch your bare wires. Never touch your bare wire. Okay. You got to have touch something metal. For conduction? Yes, sir, like this camera. Okay, then we know that that's a hot wire. Yes, sir, it's hot. Okay. Was that a Fox show? Yeah. This is
1: Fox.
2: And I did a show. I did did some development before that. You know, I worked on some different pilots and did some development things. I did a lot of that kind of cable stuff uh, for a while, and um, I continued to work in the business. You know, you kind of go, you go kind of go from show to show, and um, there came a kind of a turning point where you know I was, I was kind of an. I was an okay joke writer, you know. I was okay. You could do better than me as a joke writer. But I but I think I really liked being in charge and I liked organization and I like management. So I really kind of moved to the producer side, which um, I think will suit me really, really well. Um, and I started kind of I worked my way up producing, became a segment producer, and then became a coordinating producer, and then you know, ultimately was in charge of shows exactly producer, and these were
0: for all kinds of different shows or
2: no yeah all kinds of different shows the one i think i did was in new york called the state for mtv and it was a sketch show we did that for three years it was actually very successful in those the talent on that is continues to be successful to this day. Excuse
5: me, would you like to sign this petition? What's it for? Uh, to get rid of the Latinos. What What do you mean, get rid of the Latinos? You know, the Spanish-speaking people. South Americans, Puerto Ricans, let's see, Peru. No, I know
1: what Latinos are. What do you mean, get rid of them?
5: I don't know. Round them up, ship them somewhere, shoot them. First we establish, we want to get rid of them, then we worry about logistics. I,
1: okay, look, alright, look, I'm Latino, and I'm very apprehensive about signing this, this petition. And you know, the more I think about it, th- I'm, I'm not crazy about the whole principle.
5: Which part? Th-
1: the part about getting rid of the Latinos.
5: This is about a grassroots movement taking charge of the government. You're for that, right?
1: Yeah, no, no, no I'm all for that, I'm all for that. It's just, uh, I, I still, I happen to think Latinos are great, terrific people.
5: So do I. My husband's Latino.
0: Who was on it? Um,
2: well, the state had 11 cast members, but guys like Tom Lennon, Ben Garant, Carrie Silver, just some people you would probably recognize.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Did you did you have a hand in hiring those folks?
2: No, I did not. MTV was going to do a sketch show, and um, they called me and said, "Hey, listen, we're looking for a producer. We have this these guys that have done off Broadway. They're really young. They're really green." they need a they need a good producer we're going to do a pilot you know this was right after we did the national version of almost live uh, which you were involved in yeah let's did...
0: let's let, let's get to let me uh stop you okay uh, there before we talk more about the state about almost live you did leave of course for the fox late show but then i i think it was 90, 1991 92 and i don't know who pulled the trigger on this thing but a deal was made to make almost live a national show. Right. And you, and so you returned to Seattle over one summer to help helm that show and, and get it done and put it on the air. And, and under this ferocious schedule where we would tape six Crazy. or se- six or seven shows every weekend, back to back to back. It was brutal. I, uh, I tell people, I look at the, uh, those shows and I, I say, that's me. That's me standing there doing that bit but I have no memory of it. I yeah. swear I swear I was sleepwalking. I was also doing morning radio at the time so I I mean I was just a zombie but man it was fun.
2: I remember yeah. That schedule was brutal and to this day I've never seen anything like it, you know, working in in Los Angeles and doing television and and telling people that are in the industry that are seasoned vets that, that what we did some of them don't even believe it.
0: Yeah, it was pretty remarkable.
2: Yeah,
0: Uh, and uh, and 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 it worked, and the show aired on Comedy Central for a couple of seasons. It was reborn a couple of other times in syndication. Yeah. So uh, you, uh, you, you were just hugely, hugely instrumental in making that happen, and uh, in shepherding a a show like you said. Most people thought, well, you can't do you can't do that much work in, in just a handful of weeks. I forgot how many shows. It turned out to be but 65 65 yeah wow and so it was a great experience for everybody we made a little bit of money so then back to the state so then you do that for five years three years yeah, three years and then uh, and then what happened
2: uh well let's see i went back to um los angeles we did the state in new york i went back to los angeles i still had my home there and continued to work on different projects went out and started pitching shows and and would work on, uh, on a lot of, it seemed like a lot of pilots. Most of them, I don't think, went made it to air, as I recall. And then I decided uh, that at some point I would, um, after I did the state, the people that at MTV landed at Comedy Central in New York, and they knew me from producing the state for MTV for two years. And they called me said, we need a um, vice president of development. We're taking over Comedy Central. It's going to be really great. And we want you to come out to New York. So I said, no, that's not what I do. I don't want to be an executive. I'm a I'm a writer. I'm a freelance. And they said, no, this is going to be really cool. You got to come out here and take a look at it. You're still going to be hands on. You're still going to develop stuff. So uh, just to shorten the story a little bit. Yeah, would you? I took the job. I went to New York and this whole new team at Comedy Central and I hated it.
4: You know, if it was possible to write the word hate on each grain of sand in the Sahara Desert, all that hate on each of those hateful grains would equal one, one millionth of the hate that I'm hating you with right now.
2: I hated going to to meetings. I hated following rules. I hated having an office um i was kind of miserable
0: unless it was pink you didn't want one
2: it, it wasn't pink that was the deal uh, um and i lasted like 10 months and uh i left on pretty good terms the way i was able to work it. but i i had to get out of it. And I had developed a show called Viva Variety while I was there. And I left, and they picked the show up, and they called me and said, hey, why don't you come out and produce this And You developed it.
0: Comedy Central could have brought any show
2: here
3: from Europe. Great shows like the topless soccer news or Saturday Night Goat Parade. But they wanted the biggest show with the brightest stars and the craziest acts. That's why they chose Viva Variety. Because for world-class entertainment, Viva Variety is second to none. And I don't think they wanted to clean up after all those goats.
2: Watch FIFA Variety on Comedy Central. If you don't get Comedy Central, call your cable operator. It was four with four former members of the state who were friends of mine. So we did uh, two seasons of Viva Variety. I produced that for Comedy Central.
0: Fantastic. So you still were a star material at Comedy Central, even though you didn't want to go to meetings and, and, and wear a suit every
2: day. Well, yeah, and then... You know, I don't know if you how far you want to jump ahead, but I ended up going back to Comedy Central many years later and spent 14 years there
0: with a couple of 10-day follow-ups.
4: Oh, Pat!
0: That I know, and uh, you pulled your way uh, way up the ladder there. You, I think you ended up as a vice president of West Coast programming.
2: Exactly, vice, vice president, Pat. Exactly. Oh, exactly. oh sorry,
0: Whoa. Executive life.
2: It's funny, at that time I was ready now, you know, I was older and i had done it and I've been around. I felt like, I actually felt like, you know what, I think I know what I'm doing. I think I'm pretty good at this. I think I want to go to the other side of the desk and, and be a buyer. I've been selling and pitching uh, my whole life, and I think I want to go be the buyer and, and try it from that side of the desk.
0: Good move. It sure worked out for you. I th- you can correct me if I'm wrong, but people would know shows that you develop put on the air like Tosh.0 oh, and... Yeah.
1: The biggest threat to suburban white teens in this country is
2: opioids. Close second, trampolines. <laughs>
0: He and Peel a just spectacularly great show. That
2: was a lot of fun. That was a great show. No, no,
0: yes.
1: no. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. Okay? I guarantee you. I guarantee you if you look at Obamacare 25 years from now and you look at the number of enrollees in that program you got it wrong what you have to do yeah. is look at the tremendous effect that Obamacare is having on the US economy and in addition you have to look at the government bailouts of the auto industry and the banking you industry you got it wrong I've got it wrong. so wrong you have to look at the effect on the banking industry as well as the auto industry, okay. my friend. Listen, when you do, wait, the, 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 line, the only the conclusion is that, is that Obama is a disaster. Are you a Republican? Yes. I'd like to apologize for this programming mistake. In the future, we will do better at choosing our guests. Here I'm Diametrically Opposed.
0: And and one of my favorites, and I've seen pictures of you with him, uh, Nathan for you, Nathan yes. Felder. Yes, that was just a really different kind of show, and I loved the uh, you know, novelty of it. It wasn't just another type of here's another show like that one. This was maybe maybe borrowed a little bit from Candid Camera, uh, but it 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 was really really fun.
5: Every hotel's greatest fear is having to hire an exterminator because their arrival is basically an announcement that the hotel has pests. So if Javier could disguise his purpose to make it look like he's there to give the hotel an award, he'd not only delight guests, but surely win a contract with a hotel that wants to keep their pest problem a secret. Now how, I mean, do I show up with the, I mean, I just, I, I, as far as If customers see you coming in, they're actually going to be like, oh, this hotel is really good, you know, rather than seeing an exterminator and being like, oh, this hotel is not so good. (laughs) You've done this before, you know, you're a business major. I mean,
4: what's the worst that's going to happen?
5: Javier was on board with the concept, so to sell this to a hotel, I needed to show them exactly how the system would work. So I had one of Javier's service vans rewrapped to look like a delivery vehicle for the Hotel Excellence Awards, a very prestigious organization that I made up. Then, Javier and I worked to develop a discrete method for exterminating every room in a hotel. It begins by arriving in our covert vehicle, then removing what looks like a large trophy that's being awarded to the hotel. This serves a dual purpose of both getting our equipment inside and impressing guests as they see that they're currently residing in the hotel with the least amount of bed bugs.
3: With the least bed bugs? Yeah. So it's possibly of some being there.
5: We're just delivering the award, we don't know. Oh, okay. It didn't stay on the air
0: long enough for me, but it was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'm re- it's funny you bring that up. I love that show too, I'm really proud of it. It actually had a, I think, four year run, so. Um, and Nathan was really great and it was just really unique. He just, uh, it, it was all about Nathan and his, his talent, his point of view and how he looked at things. Um, he had yeah. a, just a really knack of how to deal with real, real people.
0: Yeah. It was a, it was fantastic, but yeah. that just goes to show the, the, really the wide variety of things that you, you worked on there. There's the Kroll show and workaholics, Reno Nine One One. Yeah. Uh, The Jesselneck Offensive. Uh Uh-huh. How was it working with that guy?
2: Uh, how would you think it would be? I'm 12 years old, I'm sneaking around my house, and I found my dad's porn in the back of the attic. That was a great day. That was a game changer for me. But then the worst day of my life was the day I found my mom's porn. (laughs) In the back of that video store. Yeah, he he could be difficult, Uh, he really knew what he wanted and, you know, you know, he, he really pushed it and at the end of the day we were still a network and networks have standards and practices and so there was always those battles. There's some things I just don't understand, like I've never understood the foot fetish. Like I once went on a date with a girl, first date, and we went hiking. Her idea. And while we're hiking she gets bit by a snake in between two toes and i had to suck out the poison so she's dead
0: well it's so jim you uh you have departed now from comedy central as of a few years ago was that your idea or did you just say you know what it's time to leave now
2: no it was time that's all uh, yeah i've been there 14 years and uh got a little bit older and it's really a a young person's game as they say yeah and i just it just i was i was done in fact you know i'm surprised i i stayed there as as long as i did And, and i think a lot of people have expressed that to me over the years that they can't believe i'm still still doing that so i feel like i was really fortunate and we did have some success and, uh, you know, it's a game of being successful. If you're, if you're successful, you get to stick around. But if you don't, you don't last very long. And so we had a really good team uh, that operated at a very, very high level with a lot of success. But I felt like, you know, it just you just kind of know when it's time to go.
0: You know what I'd like to see you do? As the writer that you are, there would be a wonderful book about your time at Comedy Central. You might make some enemies, I suppose, but I think it would be a hugely entertaining because you you've got to have a huge trove of stories.
2: Yeah. I know where some bodies are buried for sure.
0: I just found another Jim Sharp. Uh he uh he, it says he was a he it's a company that sells custom slip mats and clothing for DJs. Any relation?
2: Uh no.
0: There's also a Captain Jim Sharp who helmed a schooner in gloucester massachusetts in the 1980s
4: i like that because
0: you uh, you have a boat right
2: have a boat yes
0: so in a way you are yourself captain jim sharp (laughs) hey thanks for uh thanks for carving some time out for this my favorite bit of yours from Almost Live Days, and you—and this wouldn't be one that you'd be the proudest of, but I, it's one I just always remember. Uh, you were in a bit that was a recurring one, I think, called Incredibly Petty Court. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. People would be sitting in a courtroom, they'd be charged with something so minuscule, so so everyday, and yet, it, and yet they were in a court. They were incredibly petty crimes. <laughs> Another true case from Incredibly Petty Claims Court.
3: Please state your name and your relationship to the defendant. Uh, My name is Ray Barnes and I'm a friend and co-worker. I show you now a plate of nachos marked People's Exhibit A. Could you identify them for us? Well, this is a deluxe order of macho nachos from uh, Gomez's restaurant. Mm -hmm. And please tell the court now in your own words what happens after every company softball game. Well, we go down to Gomez's restaurant and order a plate of these and uh, Walter never pays for them but he always eats half of them.
0: There's a very good reason that you don't pay for the nachos, isn't
2: it? Yeah, I don't eat nachos. I I don't like them. Those guys devour nachos so fast, they can't keep track of who's eating nachos. I've I've never liked nachos. I I hate the green things. Your witness.
3: (laughs) Mr. Southwell, leaving aside the nachos for a moment, isn't it a fact that you owe Ray Barnes $5 from a previous occasion? No. Well, I show you now an I-O-U for $5 made out to Mr. Barnes. Isn't that, in fact, your signature?
4: Well,
2: yeah, but that gets canceled because Fred Simmons owes me $5, so I
3: told Ray I just collect from Fred. Is this the same Fred Simmons who died in
0: 1978? Mm
2: -hmm. No. No? Well, he actually got sick in 78. He didn't
0: die until 79. (laughs) Jim, thank you. Take care of yourself, and please write that book, would you?
2: Um, yeah, might need some help. I'll let yeah. you know. Let's keep okay. in touch, man. It's was great awesome. reconnecting. Great hearing from you, Pat.
0: You too, Jim. Thanks a ton, man. Okay.
2: The Almost Live Still
0: Alive
1: podcast, produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman.